Welcome, welcome. Take a seat. So uh, I did some hosting earlier in the week, and I feel way less obligation to be to any degree motivating or hyping for this crowd and this discussion tonight. But it doesn't mean I lack enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, I've been a huge fan of Jordan Peterson for a long time, and he's been instrumental in helping me grapple with the deeper elements of Bitcoin and value and meaning and how that's all wrapped up together. And of course, the same is true for Rob. And it's my honor to introduce the person that's going to come out, warm you guys up, and entertain you prior to that. And this is a person who, Jordan Peterson talks about the Joker archetype a lot. And this is a person that, through comedy, gets away with saying the things that most of us can't say out loud. We can't say them to our social groups, we can't say them to our family, so we rely on the court jester to say that shit. And that's the person that can say anything they want to the king and he won't be killed for it. And this is a tremendously valuable role in the world that we live in today because there's so much censorship, there's so much bullshit, there's so much insanity, there's so much canceling, there's so much deplatforming that we need someone that can stand up and say, this is bullshit, but do it in a way that sneaks under the surface where you're not going to be deplatformed for saying that. And, uh, you know, the other element of the Joker that's so important and so therapeutic for us is like we all, I think, appreciate, at least to some degree, how fucking insane clown world is right now. Hopefully we're approaching peak fiat. Yeah, yeah. And it can be maddening, right? You doom scroll on Twitter, and you know, you think you go have a shit, and maybe you're there for five minutes, and then 45 minutes later you wake up, and you're like, what the fuck just happened to me? And and then, you, and then you have a bad feeling because you're like, oh my God, the world is even worse than I thought. Look at all the crazy shit that's going on. And then you got to go back to normal life and justify whatever menial task you've been up to. And it sucks, right? And then we have these people that take that clown world and one, they make it comedic. They make a joke out of it. And that's therapeutic. That helps us. That helps us not be, fall victim to the depression and the anxiety and the hopelessness of all the clown world. And then secondarily, and perhaps more importantly, by virtue of how they do that, they cover these issues with comedy. They're able to communicate to people that have those big walls up. I'm sure many of the people in our lives, we've tried to have these conversations with them about how crazy everything is. And of course, we try to orange pill them as a result of that. But we often find that we can't penetrate people's perspectives. You use the best logic, you use the best reason that you can muster, and it still doesn't go anywhere. But a funny meme or a funny comedian, a funny video by someone who's covering these issues in a disarming sort of way, and they're like, oh, I didn't think of it that way before. Or you know what? Now that he's done, he showed it to me this way, it does seem fucking absurd. It is crazy. And I think that helps us not only therapeutically us get through our day and get through our life and keep pushing forward on things that are meaningful despite the craziness, but it also helps rectify some of that by changing the narrative, by turning it around, and by getting more people to think about these issues in a way that's productive so that they can be interested in Bitcoin, so that they can be interested in freedom. And in my opinion, that's one of the top values or virtues that guide us in our life is that of freedom. And if we don't have freedom, and if we're in a society and in a culture that doesn't value it, then things go to hell. And so the person that I'm about to bring on stage has formed the basis of his comedy 
which is outstanding. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. Grounded in this idea that freedom is one of the most valuable virtues or principles that we can use to orient ourselves and orient our cultures and our families. And, and all good comes from that. And I'm sure Rob and, and Jordan are going to uh, discuss that in the discussion tonight. But please help me in welcoming to the stage Mr. J.P. Sears. I see Please give it up again for Mr. John Vallis. Wow. He, he said nice things about me. Thank you, John. I don't like white people. So I'm curious, make a little noise if you're excited to hear Jordan Peterson tonight. Right on. I'm not. He's an intellectual, and I think that's uninclusive to dumb people. I don't like to learn, and I wish everybody would just accept me for who I am. We need to cancel Jordan Peterson tonight for the good of our dumb community, okay? I'm trying to start a new movement, take the best of the body positivity world and bring it into intellectual positivity, right? Being dumb is just as smart as being intelligent, okay? Don't question it or I'll get angry. I'm curious, I like to read the room, make a little noise if you have watched some of my videos before. Oh, wow. Oh, it's very generous of you. Wow. I know. I know. I'm just trying to bolster my ego here. But. So I'm the guy you normally watch while you're sitting there on the toilet with your pants around your ankles. But tonight I'd invite you to keep your pants on while you watch me. Y'all excited for World War III? Dude, I cannot wait to get World War III over so we can finally get to what really matters. The Civil War. I think this is going to be a great Civil War. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting, competitive. But I think this is going to be a confusing Civil War. Right? Think about the last one we had. It was the North versus the South. Those are two very clearly defined sides and directions. But this one, left versus the right? How confusing is that going to be on the battlefield? You won't know who to kill. They're like, Captain, where's the left? It's like, you're over there on the right. Was that my right or your right? Oh, that's a good question. It's my right, your left. Okay. I turn around, it's all reversed. Because I'll be out there. I want to make a difference for our country. I want to kill people. <laughs> but in a peaceful Portland kind of way, so it's good. I imagine, like, I won't know who to kill. Got to run up, identify people before I shoot. Like, ah, what side do you want, man? He's like, relax, I'm on the right. I'm like, I don't believe you. He's like, what climate change? All right, you're good. <laughs> Go to the next guy. What side are you on, man? It's like, first off, man isn't my preferred pronoun. <laughs> Thank you for the identification. 
He was on my team, too. I just, I didn't need to know anything about his genitals. Like, why are you telling me about your crotch? I didn't ask. What the fuck is wrong with you? That's some decency. Felt violated by his narcissism. But here's the question. Civil War. What side are you going to be on? Left or the right? Now, I think there's only one correct answer. And I don't think it matters what your beliefs are, what your politics are. You could be a libertarian, a conservative, or a communist. Or I, I think there's only one correct answer. You want to be on the right. Because it's a war. Don't you want to be on the side with all the guns? Does that make a little bit of sense? One side has guns, the other side has pronouns. Your life, do what you want. One side has actual military training, the other side has woke military training. Oh. <laughs> Look at that very diverse looking group of them theirs that I'm about to easily kill. It's too easy, but fuck them. I don't care. Um, I don't want to talk about politics tonight. But before I don't talk about politics, I got some stuff to say. Oh, you know, as we get going, just a little public service announcement. If you get offended by anything I say tonight, I just want you to know, I apologize, I realize it's my fault how you make yourself feel based on how you interpret my words and filter them through your undealt with insecurities that <laughs> cause you to victimize yourself, which makes you feel significant because you're screaming as a loudest victim, but you don't know how else to get your emotional needs met as you're blaming someone else for what you are doing to yourself. That's all on me. Obviously. So accordingly, Mr. Breedlove has left note cards underneath each of your seats. So if you get your fragile feelings hurt tonight, feel free to fill them out and leave your feedback and send them off to who the fuck cares. Take a look and nothing will change. And in our world today, obviously, we have problems. And my heart mostly goes out to the food community. I empathize with food present day. I think different groups of food are going through the same social challenges that different groups of people are going through. Like Tofurky. It's the transgender of the food community. It's like, I used to be a plant, but now I identify as meat. Oh, there's no bathroom for me? Well, you can go toe-fuck yourself. <laughs> Relax, use any of them. And I think alcohol's the Joe Biden of the food world. Alcohol's also linked to impaired speech. And I think gluten is the Donald Trump of the food world. A lot of people say they're intolerant. But most of those people go home and crave it now, don't they? <laughs> uh, speaking of our 45th president, uh, for me it was on, an honor 
couple months ago, I got an invitation to perform for President Trump at a private fundraiser. I thought, well, this is amazing. But here, here's the deal. I usually don't get nervous before I go on stage. I got nervous for this. The way I was looking at it, like, wow, I'm performing for President Trump? There's a lot riding on this. If it goes well, you never know. It could be Trump Sears in 2024. Let's see what happens. So the run of show is going to be President Trump speaks for an hour, and then I go on stage immediately following him. <laughs> President Trump's opening for me? <laughs> okay. Now, performance is absolutely horrible. But the exciting part was before, I had a chance to meet him briefly, get a picture. So there I was. I had to wear a tuxedo. as in this line of people to get a picture, secret service everywhere, beautiful wife's with me in this ball gown dress. Then it was our turn, the secret service ushered us behind this curtain, and there's President Trump. I went right up to him and said, Mr. President, thank you for everything you've done for our country. And my wife said, hi. Um, She was starstruck. She lost her words. It was cute. So I said, babe, I will handle it. Mr. President, what she's trying to say is, would you please be willing to grab my wife by the pussy? <laughs> and he said, young man, thank you for being a true patriot. Yes, I will. Do y'all believe in aliens? Yeah. Yeah. Do you? Some of us think, well, that's where Bitcoin came from, JP. <laughs> I think I have proof aliens exist. Here it is. You've been fishing before? Yeah. You know how you go out on the boat on the water? Just imagine that from the fish's perspective. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Is that an unidentified floating object? I've never seen anything like this before. Then one of them gets abducted. <laughs> they do their thing with them, but these are catch and release aliens. <laughs> After they let him go, he swims up to his friends. He's like, just listen. <laughs> So I was abducted by these beings, taken on board their spacecraft. I've never seen anything like them before. They don't look anything like us. Uh, they had eyes, but they were different. Uh, they, the only way I could describe them, and I want to say, and I don't know what this means, but I just want to say they look like bearded, drunken rednecks, whatever that means. <laughs> they didn't have flippers. They had these phalange things. One of them stuck them down my throat, pulled out something metal. It felt violating. <laughs> then he took a fucking selfie with me. <laughs> and then they just let me go. His friends were like, sure, Derek. Um, I think you've been hitting the seaweed a little too hard there, buddy. And then they all swim away. 
leaving him feeling all alone and abandoned in his traumatic time of need. But he's got that one friend. Eventually comes back up to him. He's like, hey, man, I want you to know I believe you. I've been listening to Joe Rogan's podcast. (laughs) I understand. Man. Man, I'm curious. If you've been following my work for, uh, by the way, that's my scientific proof that aliens exist. That's how my minds work. We're just aliens to someone else. or We're fish to someone else. But I, if you've been following me for any length of time, you know, the past two years, the mission of my work has completely changed. It's gone from let's make people laugh to now let's use a language of comedy to represent and awaken people to protect and preserve their greatest God-given gift that makes life worth living, and that gift is called freedom. So, oh, thank you. It's very kind of you guys, and you know, I, I just want you to know, along the way, every drop of support you've sent my way, whether it's watching a video or buying a piece of my merch or sharing this experience with me tonight, every drop of support, I want you to know, I see it, I feel it, and it fuels me. And more importantly, I want you to know, I recognize that more than supporting me, which it does, you're supporting something far greater than me, far greater than all of us. You're supporting the mission of freedom. So I just want to say thank you guys for that. Thank you. And just a a short story along those lines that touched my heart recently I want to share with you. I was at a, a few weeks ago, I was at a tour stop doing shows for the weekend, and my wife and little boy went with me. As the weekend was over, we flew back to Austin where we live and I was holding my son the whole flight. So when we got off the plane, you know, I had to use the restroom. So I go in, do my thing. I come out, and my wife's standing there holding a white envelope. I said, what's that envelope from? She said, yeah. As soon as you went in the restroom, this sweet old lady came walking off the plane and said, Mrs. Sears, please tell JP thank you for doing what he's doing. I see how he uses his platform to speak up for freedom. I see he's brave. He's making a difference. Please tell him I appreciate him and I love him. And I've always wanted to support him, but I haven't known how. So please give him this. I looked inside the envelope. $70 cash. I said to my wife, what a cheap bitch. This, I put so much effort into my work. This covers none of my costs. She wasn't even wearing any of my merch. The nerve of this lady wasting my time for $70. <sighs> y'all bring your white envelopes tonight? <laughs> Last year, I want to share this. My wife and I adopted a new dog. Now... Thank you. (laughs) Fucking creepy guy over there. But what that experience taught me is when people adopt a puppy, it brings out the absolute worst in us. But we never see it when it's us. We just think we're happy, like, oh, we're we're getting a dog, giving a new home. This is great. Uh Uh-uh. No. It's kind of like if you've ever had a friend who's in an abusive relationship, 
maybe trying to help her out, but she's just in denial. She's like, no, 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 he really loves me. I'm going to stay with him. Oh, that's a situation your dog's in with you. <laughs> Think about it. It starts off, you take him from his mother, his brothers, and his sisters. That's his family, and that's called kidnapping. <laughs> and then you hold him as your hostage for the rest of his life. And you do some messed up stuff along the way. Like you try to erase all his natural instincts out of his mind to get him to conform to your commands, like you're some kind of cult leader. The fact that you control his food supply makes him more susceptible to your brainwashing techniques. Keep your hostage naked his whole life. You bang your spouse while he's in the bed watching you. Like a creepy sex cult. Might get your dog fixed. That's genital mutilation. Some people breed their dogs. That's sex trafficking. And the only contact you give them with the outside world is under your close supervision while you've got a leash tied around his neck. People are like, well, yeah, JP. He'd try to run away if I didn't. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean he tried to escape? <laughs> Probably. And then towards the end of his life, you do what was illegal for you to do once grandma crossed a certain line. <laughs> so when you add it up, you commit a lot of felonies when you adopt a dog. <laughs> but meanwhile, your hostage loves you with all his heart, thinks you're the greatest person in the world, and he even tries to protect you, the captor, from any harm. Hmm. Stockholm Syndrome's a hell of a thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, JP, dogs are fucking dumb for falling for that. <laughs> but we should listen to Fauci, right? I think he's trying to protect us. No, don't, don't applaud. I, I was, I'm kidding, because it's the same. But if you felt like a twinge of anger when I said that, then you know who you are in this analogy. <laughs> Time for a walk. <laughs> Man. Before I get out of here, uh, last thing I want to say on a sincere note before I bring up uh, the man who has bigger muscles than me, it makes me feel insecure. But I do want to say from my heart to yours, one, thank you for inviting me into your community. I know a lot of y'all are Bitcoiners. This is the best cult I've ever been a part of. Turn up. <laughs> y'all are sociopaths. Y'all know that? You just own it. It's great, but you're sociopaths. I listen to conversations about like, yeah, I red-pilled so-and-so. I'm like, fuck it, like roofies? What is this orange-pilling shit y'all are doing to each other? What kind of Bill Cosby crypto are y'all into? <laughs> but I do want to say from my heart to yours, needless to say, we live in a world that's challenged. Never before, at least in my lifetime, has there been more motivation from a tyrannical few to take the freedom of the beautiful many. And I think every drop of 
contribution to the betterment of the world for our children and grandchildren, I think it counts. Because right now, we have the pen in hand. We are authoring the future of our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. They don't have the pen in hand. You and I do. To me, that's a little bit scary, but it's also very empowering. It's scary if we don't pick up the pen. If we do pick up the pen, it's even scarier. But it's empowering if we do that. And in my opinion, there's a lot. In, you're, you're into Bitcoin, so you're doing something. But I also believe we can always do more. We can always up-level ourselves. Infinity is a big concept. And I think the infinite intelligence that surrounds us, I think it's very much on team humanity. And I think it works through us, much like how the microorganisms in the jungle work through the tree. It creates sap. We are very well supported. All we have to do is have the awareness to hear how we can support and the courage to act on it and realizing the old saying, it's way better to die on our feet than to live on our knees. But it can be an intimidating concept. Thank you. This is the hill to die on. And it can also be intimidating to look at where do we begin I can't answer that question for you, but I can leave you with just a small little formula that strikes my heart as very meaningful to consider when it comes to how can I create a better present for myself and a better future for my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and it's this. If we can live in a way where our words and our actions stay in impeccable alignment with our heart and soul and our own critical thinking, if we can have the awareness to be aware of what is our thinking and separate the propaganda that runs on the hardware of our mind, be aware of our critical thinking, aware of the guidance of our heart, and aware of our own soul's calling, and then have the courage to act on it through our words and actions. If we do that, I promise you it's a tremendous contribution. And I promise you, if we do that in mass consistently, the many become an unstoppable force. Thank you for hearing my message. I love you guys. Thank you. These guys are standing for me. You guys aren't. What the fuck is wrong with you? Thank you. No. Sit down, sit down, y'all are. Thank you, guys. You're so kind. Yeah. Thank you. I love y'all. Well, it is my honor to bring up the man. You know him. You love him. He's going to be leading a beautiful conversation with Dr. Jordan Peterson. His traps are way thicker than mine. He is a brilliant mind. It's my honor to introduce Mr. Robert Breedlove, ladies and gentlemen. It is so nice to have everyone here. I would like to thank fellow freedom maximalist J.P. Sears for opening up for us. Yeah. <laughs> he does have better hair than me. That is a fact. And I'm, I think I speak for all of us when I say we couldn't be happier to have him in our cult, right? I mean, he's, 
He's the best. So tonight, we're going to talk about a lot of things. First and foremost among those is freedom. Um, if you followed my work before, you know that I consider life, liberty, property, the three temporal aspects of freedom that make civilization sustainable and abundant for us. Um, before we get into those deep ideas with a very deep guy, I do want to express gratitude. Many of you came up to me before uh, at the little reception we had here. You've expressed how much value you've received from my work or the work of others. And to echo something JP said, that is what fuels me. Um, I'm extremely grateful to be doing what I do. I love adding value to other people's lives. So thank you for telling me that. Thank you for the, the downloads, the views, the follows, the comments, everything. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. On the topic of gratitude, I do want to give a shout out to our two anchor sponsors for this event that brought this whole thing to you. First is Iris Energy. So Iris Energy is one of the world's leading institutional grade Bitcoin mining companies. And they do this, uh, they do Bitcoin mining on 100% renewable energy. So this makes Iris Energy really stand out from other Bitcoin mining companies in that Iris is focused on building, owning, and operating their own highly efficient and proprietary data centers. Uh, clearly, Bitcoin's being attacked with all these ESG narratives, so Iris is a nice counterpoint to that. They use self-custody of their asset base, which heavily reduces their reliance on third parties and ensures that they control and maximize their own Bitcoin production. Uh, Iris is deeply focused on giving back to the communities in which they operate and has one of the most experienced management teams in the industry. And they've delivered in excess of $25 billion worth of energy and infrastructure projects globally. Iris Energy is traded on the NASDAQ under the symbol IREN and is emerging as a true industry leader in Bitcoin mining. So thank you so much, Iris Energy. Secondly, second sponsor, Off the Chain Capital, which is one of the best performing, I know this might be a dirty word, but a blockchain fund. Um, they actually invest in mostly Bitcoin focused products. So don't let the word bother you. They are the number one performing blockchain fund over the past five years. Number one performing hedge fund out of almost 6,000 in the past five years. Very impressive. They've outperformed Bitcoin in five out of the five past years. They've insulated 80% downside volatility against Bitcoin, which makes it a good option for endowments, foundations, first-time investors, large capital pools, etc. It is a large fund. They're about, I think, 500 million AUM. They're a $1 million minimum. They are led by Mr. Brian Estes, who I think is here tonight somewhere. There he is. And Brian, I want to give him a special shout out. He was on the show recently, and this man has a conviction about Bitcoin education, and he does a great job. He's a great speaker. I look forward to releasing that episode. And with that, um, I think it would be difficult for me to overstate how excited I am about tonight. Uh, this man has been very impactful on my thinking. I think he's been transformative in the lives of millions. And it is my hope uh, to have a very deep, meaningful, insightful dialogue today about this lovely Bitcoin rabbit hole that we're all falling down. With that, I would like to welcome to the stage Dr. Jordan B. Peterson.
know if I've had talk show music before. <laughs> <laughs> I've waited a long time to say this, but Dr. Peterson, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Glad to have you. Um, I thought we would just kind of cut straight to the heart of it. Um, I'd like to talk about the concept of fiat. And we hear a lot about fiat currency in the Bitcoin circles, but I think the original fiat, as I understand it, and I'd love for you to correct me where I'm wrong, is this concept of fiat lux, when God said, let there be light, right? There's the original decree that started all things. Um, and it's my perception that all human acts of fiat are basically attempts of man to play God, right? We're trying to impose, someone speaking fiat to another is trying to impose his opinion on someone else. And it seems to be uh, an interruption to that dialogic process that engages us in truth discovery and meaning and whatnot. So, and we tweeted a little bit about this back and forth. I think I tweeted out, um, volition is the only sustainable binding to socioeconomic systems, which mm. that sounds complicated. Mm. Basically means we need to, all interactions need to be voluntary on both sides. Otherwise, optimally. Optimally. Otherwise yeah. it breaks down. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good goal. Yeah, mm -hmm. and your response, you, you mentioned this, uh, as John Piaget demonstrated, mm -hmm. by the way, it's also why psychopathy is, to put it mildly, a suboptimal strategy. So I would love for you to expand upon that. I've barely read a little bit of Piaget, thanks to you. Um, but I'd love to hear your perspective on fiat and the necessity of mutual voluntary exchange in human relations. You know, Piaget did a lot of... So Jean Piaget is often uh, known as a developmental psychologist, and developmental psychologists study the development of children. Um, he didn't term himself a developmental psychologist. He regarded himself as a genetic epistemologist. And um, epistemology is the study of systems of knowledge and perhaps an investigation into what makes a system of knowledge valid. Um, how do you know if, what does it mean for knowledge to be valid, let's say, and how do you know that it's valid? And how do you distinguish between a system of knowledge that's valid and one that's invalid? Um, and so that's epistemology, the study of knowledge structures. And genetic meant not genes, but beginning, as in Genesis. Now, Piaget, Piaget was actually interested in bridging the gap between science and religion, by the way. That was his fundamental motivation. Um, I'm just telling you that to put this all in a broader context. But he believed that philosophers would have had a better time trying to understand the structure of structures of knowledge if they looked at how they developed because they would develop from simple forms to more complex forms. And even if we couldn't necessarily understand the more complex forms, we might be able to understand the simpler forms and those would manifest themselves first in children. So that's Piaget's take on the world. And he was interested in a very wide range of topics, one of which was the development of morality in children. And that's where Piaget wrote a lot of books, and I haven't read them all. And God only knows how much, a lot of it isn't translated either. God only knows how much unmind wisdom there is in 
Piaget's lesser known books, but he believed that children played games because games were social microcosms. And so, and he believed that games by their very nature, for them to be games, had to be voluntary. And that optimal games were optimally voluntary and simultaneously enjoyable and also devoted towards mutually shared ends. So for example, you could imagine two different kinds of play. One might be the kind of play you'd engage in in a formal game like baseball and uh, another might be pretend play and in baseball you specify a goal and everyone who's playing accepts the same goal. People often think of games like baseball as competitive and there's been some attempt among boneheaded educators to insist that the only valid games are cooperative games but for someone as sophisticated as Piaget, that whole idea was a non-starter because people don't bring a basketball to a baseball game. And so what that means is that the mere act of agreeing upon the goal, which obviously you do in a game, was fundamentally cooperative, right? That's the landscape. It's almost like a, you could think about it as a constitutional agreement in some sense, right? What are we here for? Well, we're here to play ball. We're here to play baseball. Okay, well, we're not going to debate that. That's the cooperation. Well, now we can undertake the next goal, which would be perhaps the development of our athletic prowess or perhaps victory in this particular game. It's not so obvious exactly what the goal is, but there's different levels. And that that has to be played voluntarily. Right. And it's the same with games of, of pretend play. Um, children will sit down and negotiate their roles, their, their fragmentary identities for the purpose of right. the game. They'll act out the spirit of what they're mimicking, because Piaget was also extremely interested in imitation and, and wrote very, in a very sophisticated manner about imitation. And uh, we design roles and then we'll run the simulation voluntarily. And one of the points that Piaget made was that, well, a number of them, one was that there's something key to what we regard as morality itself in that process and experience of voluntary engagement. It's really profound, you know. So imagine when you're a child, you have a play partner, and you're having fun. Well, what does that mean exactly? What, what, I mean, those are the sorts of things we don't tend to think about because they seem so obvious that you pass by them without further notice. But why is one game fun and another game not fun? And, well, and then you might think, well, is, can there be a not fun game? And you think, well, yeah, but it's a pretty lousy game. It's not one I'd like to play. And Piaget's notion was, if it's a game that you wouldn't like to play, then it's ill-structured. It's immoral. He believed that the act of voluntary play in childhood was the precursor to the establishment of ethical societies. And that's a hell of an, an idea. It's an unbelievably profound idea, a remarkable idea. And he believed, furthermore, 
so not only that the game was a microcosm of society, and he meant that technically because it would be, imagine that as you become more sophisticated, as you move towards adulthood, your games become more sophisticated simultaneously, and at some point the game merges into adulthood. You say, well, adulthood's not a game. It's like, well, then you're not playing it properly. <laughs> well, I, I mean that, I, I really mean that. And, and it's, it's, it's again almost impossible to overstate how profound an idea this is. Well, my marriage isn't a game. It's like, well, that means it's suboptimal. Because it should be, it should be voluntary, right? The, 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 the interactions that you have with your partner should be voluntary. And you should both want to do them. And they should be self-maintaining as well. And if they're voluntary, they're much more likely to be self-maintaining because you don't have to maintain them by force. You right. don't have to expend right. energy. So, and I'll close with this. Sorry for the lengthy answer, but it's a comp ask a complicated question and get a complicated answer. Um, Piaget also believed that, imagine you had a game that was devoted to some end here and a game that was devoted, another game that was devoted to the same end here. So two identical games, but here's the difference between the games. The players in one game are forced to play and the players in the other game have chosen to play. And Piaget's hypothesis was that over any reasonable amount of time, the game with voluntary players would outcompete the game with involuntary players because some of the game, some of the energy in the game that could be devoted towards the game, let's say towards productivity, for example, would be wasted on enforcement. Right. And it's wasted more than that because, you know, if you have to force, well, then you also don't have positive emotion working for you. Uh, you know, genuine, the genuine enthusiasm that comes with voluntary engagement. And so here, an optimally structured social institution, even if that's just one person and another, say in the course of a marriage, if it's optimal, it has a game-like nature. And it's voluntary, it's based on voluntary association, and it maintains itself without external compulsion and it has that playful spirit if it's done properly. And that's a good principle for analyzing your relationship with yourself, your relationship with the topics that you consider, your relationship with your family members, uh, your relationship with your friends, and also the structure of, of broader social structures. To the degree they deviate from desirable voluntary game, they deviate from ethical optimality. Mm. And that's all tangled up in Piaget. And much more as well, but that's a good start. And that's a great start. Yeah, it's something. <laughs> yeah. So, a couple of things I'd, lo I'd love to pick up on there because I've followed your work on this. So, uh, one, just be the comment that morality emerges from play, which I think was also Piagetian. Um, and what you described there was the disequilibriated structure versus the equilibriated structure. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Voluntary versus involuntary. And that the voluntary game actually economically outcompetes the involuntary game because it has to spend resources on enforcement, turf protection, yep. things like this. Yep. Whereas the voluntary game, yeah, and it game, also it also doesn't uh, doesn't optimize motivation. Piaget didn't talk about that specifically because he didn't uh, that I know of because he didn't know the necessary psychophysiology or psychopharmacology. But well, first of all, we also know for we know now, for example, that. If you take on a challenge voluntarily, 
you have a very different psychophysiological response right. than you do if that challenge is imposed on you involuntarily. Yes, exactly. Completely different psychophysiological systems are, are activated. So if it's voluntary, the systems that, activate, that are activated are much more likely to be associated with uh, positive emotion right. and are much less psychophysiologically demanding. So you'll experience the involuntary challenge as a, as a stressor. And the problem with that, say, well, you know, what's the problem with being stressed? And the answer to that is, well, you're more likely to die if you're stressed. <laughs> I mean, stress, you have finite resources, and you burn up more of those resources if you manifest a stress response. So it's not nothing. It's, it's extremely important. So you may know where I'm going with this next, given the namesake of the show and whatnot, but the fiat currency central banking complex is, by definition, imposed by fiat. It is involuntary, technically, in terms of the rules of the game are changed all the time, right? We don't know how many U.S. dollars are in existence. We don't know the criteria for deciding. We don't know the shareholders of the central bank. We don't know the inflation rate. We don't know where the money is. It's, it's a black box, as I was describing to you earlier. Uh, would that have some impact on us psychologically, playing this game where the rules are changing all the time? And as a secondary question to that, is there any justifiable use case for fiat in human relations? Well, kids don't, kids don't like games that have rules that change. You know, that's the equivalent of a constitutional crisis, essentially. Like, if you're arguing about the rules of football, you're not playing football. You're, I suppose you're engaged in politics, and so that's not fun. And especially in the earlier stages of, of child development, this is something Piaget pointed out too, children tend to regard rules as unshakable moral axioms and right. as anybody who breaks the rules as a, a heretic and a, and a, and a, and, and a danger. Um, later, children can start to understand, some children become sophisticated enough as adults to understand that people are not only those who abide by rules, but those who formulate rules. But mm. that requires a fairly sophisticated level of psychological development. But mostly, we don't like changing rules. You know, I mean, you can have pretty harsh parents, and as long as they're predictable, you can do just fine, but it has to be predictable. But if you have the sort of parents who are changing the rules nonstop, it's like, well, you can't derive any certainty from your surroundings. And you might say, so what? It's like, well, no. Your response to uncertainty, your response to involuntary uncertainty is a stress response and that ages you and hurts you. And if there's enough uncertainty, it depends on you to some degree, because some people can handle more uncertainty than others, all things considered, but generally speaking, we don't like uncertainty at all. I mean, for, that's why, for example, all of you are sitting facing forward in your chairs. And if one of you was sitting in this auditorium with their chair reversed, looking at the other direction, there'd be a space around that person. <laughs> and that's because that, you want all the primates you don't know to do exactly what they're expected to do when you walk into a room full of strangers. And if they don't, if they evince any behavior that's outside of the domains of civilized predictability, everyone becomes extremely uneasy, like extremely uneasy, very, very rapidly. 
So we want certainty. Right, we want predictability. Right. And so if we're if we're if the rules of the game change on us, well, we can't yes. get a purchase on things, right. so to speak. So so in the fiat currency complex, not only do we have uh, a less economic model where it has to expend energy on enforcement and protecting its turf that doesn't exist in the voluntary game of Bitcoin, but we also have uh, a system that's driving people crazy, right? You can't even preserve your wealth across time in fiat currency. You don't have property rights. So in that world where you cannot store the fruit of your labor across time, how can you establish uh, a relationship that's predictable with the world and get ahead? It just seems like a system that is designed to break down, sort of uh, axiomatically deduced as we're doing here, but also historically, they all fail. And with that failure comes the disintegration of civilization. Um, you know, Mises wrote about the, the Austrian business cycle theory, which I know you've talked about. I would expand that out to a civilizational cycle theory. We've had the boom and bust of civilization based on the corruption of money. So is, is it ever justified? Because this seems, and we'll get into truth. Well, I X. think it's suboptimal. You know, okay. ever, that's, ever is a large term, <laughs> right? I mean, people, people suggested, for example, that the, the COVID epidemic was of sufficient potential magnitude to justify policies that essentially relied on force. Because, you know, let's be clear about this. Mandate means, mandate's a point of the gun, fundamentally. Mm. Because, and you say, well, no, not really. Yes, like, yes, really. Because not immediately, right? There's steps in between you and right. the gun, but that's still what's at the basis of it. And I would say, I think this is a good rule of thumb and I think it's worth applying to all of your affairs. If you have to use, if you have to enforce with force, with compulsion, that's the sign of a suboptimal strategy at minimum. Right. Now, whether is that ever necessary? Well, yes, unfortunately it is necessary and, and it's necessary. We talked, you talked a little bit about uh, psychopathy. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the question is, what do you do with people who won't play by the rules no matter what the rules are? Mm. Well, and you think, well, in an optimally structured society, no such people would exist. It's like, good luck with that theory. Well, lots of people, look, lots of people believe that. The Rousseauian types, and they're usually social utopians, this is why the communists regarded criminals as, as not as enemies, they weren't enemies of the state because they were criminals because they were victims of a corrupt system. They weren't, there wasn't, and if the system had been optimally structured, there wouldn't be any criminals. Mm -hmm. And so you could hardly blame the poor criminals. You could certainly blame the political prisoners, by the way, under that system. But you, the, you had to actually feel sorry for the criminals. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're a fool if you feel sorry for, for people who are truly criminal, because they sure bloody well don't feel sorry for you. And you might think, well, there's no people like that. It's like, that means you haven't met one. That's all it means. So there are, there's, in every society, there's a small proportion of people who will use deceit, compulsion, extortion um, to gain their ends. And right. So in response to that, in response to that, well, that, but in yes. a non-responsive situation, it seems difficult to justify at least. Well, as I said, it's at least suboptimal, yes. right? I okay. mean, if this theory is correct, or if this theoretical approach is correct, and I think there's all sorts of markers of its suboptimality. Mm -hmm. One would be, you don't want to play with someone who is forcing their game on you. Right. 
That's what and that's that's not that's not trivial because you think, well, why use the why use the phraseology of game and play? Well, play actually turns out to be something of far more significance than we might think. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it's it seems likely that when you go to a movie, you're playing. That's a form of pretend play. It's a form of imaginative play. When, whenever you're doing anything you really want to be doing, you're playing. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the notion that optimally structured systems are, operate under the necessity of fostering voluntary play, that's a hell of a good idea. Right. And one of the things I really like about that idea too, this is really cool. So the, I've been beating the drum, I suppose, to some degree, making the case that there's an unholy alliance, you might say, between postmodern theorists and neo-Marxists. And, uh, you know, the neo-Marxist types, let's start with the Marxists, we'll get to the neo-Marxists momentarily. The Marxists have a particular view of history. And the view of history is basically an economic view, and I won't argue about the utility of that momentarily, but it's a particular economic view, and the economic view is essentially that there is an exploiting class, and there is an exploited class, a bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and the reason the exploiting class the bourgeoisie have excess resources is because they've basically stolen the excess labor of the proletariat for their own nefarious means and inappropriately and as a consequence because property is theft under this sort of theoretical rubric we need a revolution to to abolish private property yes and that's right and to bring the utopia into being well so what's interesting about that there's many things but one of the uh, things that's most interesting is that that theory is basically predicated on the idea that the relations between people are governed by force, by power, right, by, by compulsion. And, and the, you know, the, the communist types lay that at the feet of capitalism, which is, I think, the most clueless thing they do which is really saying something because there's no shortage of clueless things they do. And so to find the most clueless thing is, that's, that's, that's quite something. But, but uh, you know, because to equate the use of compulsion with capitalism just strikes me as absolutely preposterous. I mean, you could say, Capitalism, if you were cynical, you could say, well, capitalism is one manifestation of the proclivity to use compulsion, and that would be a more appropriate argument, but to equate the two. Well, and in pure capitalism, there's no compulsion, right? Well, it's that. All mutual voluntary exchange. Right. Well, I, wasn't, I certainly wasn't making a case for the communists, yeah. but, but the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the case I wanted to make is you might think, well, if it's not power, if it isn't the willingness and ability to use compulsion to govern our social relations, like if it isn't mutual exploitation, what might the antithesis of that be, the opposite of that? What, what else could it be? And I think it's the spirit of play. So let me, So very, thank you, um, well said. I would like to pivot into a very important topic, which I think is related, truth. Um, I want to give a couple of definitions. I would love for you to correct or share any of your own as well. But uh, 
One was truth is just being an accurate portrayal of reality. I think that one's pretty obvious, right? We're constantly dealing with representations. The closer that representation is to the reality, the more truthful it is, whether this is the word or the picture or whatever it may be. You often talk about higher resolution versus lower resolution um, relationships. And then another definition that I think is very useful, this is from the American pragmatist. They describe truth as the end of inquiry, meaning that Mm -hmm. truth is that which inquiry is always aimed, right? And we're, we're in this ongoing process of inquiry, largely through the market, but also through dialogue and things. Uh, trying to get closer to truth. Close enough. That's close why enough. that's such a brilliant phrase. The close enough to be inquiry. useful, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, close enough to suit your purposes. Yes. Yeah, that, that's part of the reason why I'm very attracted to pragmatist accounts of truth, because yeah. one of the, the problem with the idea of truth is, well, you're, what the hell do you know? Right? You're, like, fundamentally, mm-hmm. you're, you're ignorant of almost everything. And so, you're wrong about everything. And so how do, you, how do you manage? And the answer is, sometimes what you know is good enough. And, and that's the end of inquiry. Yes. And so are you right? It's, and this is something the pragmatists, especially William James and his crew, mm-hmm. C.S. Peirce, this is the only true school of American philosophy, that's the idea. They knew this very, very well, is that it's true, what you know is true if when you implement it, the object of your desire appears yes. sufficiently. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, and that's a very different notion that, that, uh, of truth compared to, say, like a, a, an objective, an account of objective material reality. Right. And, and I think the pragmatists, I think they're right. So I, one, I one way right. I've framed this, uh, it's a map joke. If the map gets you from A to B successfully, is because the map was useful or the map was true? They become right. almost indistinguishable at some point, right? So, yes. So utility and truth, there's a pragmatic truth that is utility itself. Yeah, the map, if that's right, if the map, you know, and a, a map can be pretty damn low resolution. Yes. It, like if, if you wanted to sketch out a map from, for me of how to get from here to there, right. you could just use a couple of just extremely base sch- schematics and, and that would do the trick. Right. And so is it, I know that the truth versus, what did you say, reality, truth versus real, that's a complicated issue, but the map is true enough. Right. Right. So m- may I... Let me to tie this back yeah. to fiat a little bit. So fiat is effectively substituting that process of inquiry and saying this is the answer, right? Don't ask any more questions. Do this because I said so at the point of a gun, as you described. Yeah, fiat more broadly con- yes. conceptualized. To, yeah, because to, to order by fiat is to say by decree. So, right. So yeah, isn't, that, that. isn't that then interrupting the process of inquiry, which would then necessarily move us away from truth? <laughs> um, I think some, sometimes that's the case. Yeah. I think that would be the case when you're actually not satisfied by the consequence of the, of the decree by fiat. Right? right? You're forced to be satisfied by it. Aren't you always it, dissatisfied by the decree by fiat? Otherwise, the decree no, would be sometimes, No, no. Sometimes people tell you the way things are and they're right. Now, not very often, but, but 
you know, if you provide me with a map, for example, you say, well, this is the map of the territory, and if you follow this map, you'll get to the wall, and uh, then I, I go find I out that I get to the wall. It's so you like, can force someone to use something that's useful, basically. You can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, you don't have to force someone right, to right, use something right. that's useful, because yeah. th you might also point out then that if you have to use force, generally speaking, that means that it's not useful enough. Right. Because if enough. it was useful enough, people would just do it. So, Fair enough. Because the problem with, I think the problem with the way that you formulated the question was that it's not easy, given that formulation, to distinguish fiat from knowledge, from a priori knowledge. You know, mm -hmm. so if, if I have some knowledge and I share it with they you. They could be the same. Yes, definitely, right. okay. and, and hopefully would be a lot. Right. And I don't think it's reasonable to always assume that truth is only found in inquiry because you do have this problem which is well sometimes inquiry ends because it's good enough and then mm. you know you think well then it's on to the next inquiry fair enough but right. it still brought that to a halt yeah I, I guess i view markets as maybe like the yin to the yang of state and that they're ongoing processes of inquiry like what's the best way to satisfy human wants faster better cheaper yeah, yes. we have the state model over here, you know, legislation by fiat, fiat currency, trying to impose certain knowledge structures. Yeah, I understand I there, that's, there I may be a necessary reasonable. balance there, but we seem very weighted now towards this yang model of like, do this because I said so, use this money because I said so, call me this pronoun because I said so. Like, yeah, well, Piaget, Piaget did identify the spirit of truth with the process of inquiry. Mm. So there is an, there's an analog there. So. His book on uh, the development of morality in children, that's, there's played dreams and imitations in childhood. Played dreams and imitation in childhood, I think is the name of the book, and another one called The Development of Morality in Children. And those are the ones I would particularly recommend given your interest in, in this particular topic. But certainly that, that process of inquiry is the process by which truth is generated. So that, that's more relevant to your question. It's the process by which truth is generated. So part of the reason, here's a way of thinking about that. I, th I think it goes down the right rabbit hole. Why do you have the right to free speech? And so you, you see a lot of conservatives now, they're trying to pull the wool over the radical leftist's eyes by saying, well, you guys are all hepped up on diversity. How about viewpoint diversity? And I don't really like that formulation because it makes the freedom of speech the idea of freedom of speech subordinate to the idea of diversity, which is a really, really bad idea. Um, in any case, why do you have the right to free speech? Well, you might say, so you can say whatever damn thing comes into your head. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. It's, it's in some sense, it's even uh, an allowance for your own personal hedonism. And so it's a freedom in, in a personal sense. You know, right. you're free to speak as you see fit. But I don't think that's actually why the freedom, that freedom of speech is the cornerstone of a civilization. I think the reason it's the cornerstone of a civilization, and necessarily so, and this is associated with your idea of markets, is that you have the right to free speech, so you have the opportunity to pursue truth. And if we... And then, and then, you know, we could, we could extend that a little further. We could say you have the right to free speech so that you have the opportunity to pursue truth and you should take that opportunity on as a responsibility. I think that's a nice yeah. triad. Okay. Why? 
Well, the answer is associated with what you're driving at in terms of your opposition to fiat. It's like, well, have we got everything figured out? Because then, then fiat would work. Just do what you're told. Or do what everyone else has always done. That's sort of the conservative approach. But the rules already encapsulate what we need right. to know. It's like, so just follow them. No, it doesn't work. And the reason that it doesn't work is because, and this is why fiat doesn't work in the most fundamental sense, in the way you're referring to it, is that the future is incomputably different from the present and the past. Right. And we have to contend with that. And the question is, how do we contend with it? And the answer is, by thinking. <laughs> and by exchanging those thoughts. And thinking and the exchange of thoughts, right. that's made possible in societies where you have the right to freedom of speech. You can't think without that right. And if we adapt to what's changing by thinking, which seems to be, I just can't see, are you gonna mount an argument against that? It's like, what the hell do you think thinking is for? <laughs> I mean, it even works out neurophysiologically because the part of the brain that we use to think abstractly grew out of the part of the brain that we use to voluntarily sequence our actions. Right. And so what that means is that thinking is action abstracted and analyzed before being implemented. And so when what's the idea there? Well, if you think, you can have your thoughts die right. instead of you. Right. And so you have free speech so that everyone can right. think, and that doesn't mean everyone's right, but the free, free speech is also a social phenomena because each of us can maybe think a little bit, and now and then we have an idea that you know, isn't fatal, and maybe if we can think and talk to each other freely, which is also thinking, then we can winnow out the ideas that we actually need to keep moving forward and we can get rid of the bad ideas and we don't have to die. Right. So it's and a so, truth discovery process. Our ideas can go to battle and die so our bodies don't have to. Right. Um, and this freedom of speech is very essential to Bitcoin itself because that's literally all it is. It's just speech, just code, just language. Uh, many Bitcoiners often say Bitcoin is truth, but I think these definitions they actually map onto it nicely. We say that truth is the end of inquiry, right? We've been inquiring what is money via the market process for thousands of years. And now, even despite the fiat that's arrayed against Bitcoin, it's the fastest growing asset in human history. And if we look at truth in terms of being an accurate portrayal of reality, we say that money is time and energy. Yeah, yeah. And well, money, so the, the supply of Bitcoin for the first time in history maps onto the thermodynamic reality of energy. You cannot be. You cannot create any more energy, cannot create any more Bitcoin. So we have a tool that maps onto it perfectly for the well, first time. I think time there's a deeper, there's a deeper case to be made for, for that. So imagine that you have an incorruptible medium of okay, let, let, let me see if I can formulate this properly. Um, In principle, to the degree that the market, there we go, market is a computational device. Mm -hmm. Distributed okay, computation. So, so what we're thinking here is the way we think 
is socially, we have to do it on a large scale because, well, we're too stupid individually. <laughs> what, well, what do we know, you know? I mean, maybe 100,000 brains is better than one. And like I said, most of your ideas are stupid and hopefully somebody will be kind to you and point that out before you go live it out. <laughs> and look, we do this all the time because sanity is extraordinarily distributed socially. You know, part of the reason you maintain your sanity to the degree that you do is that your parents helped you become like minimally socially acceptable. And so other people can stand having you around some of the time. And then when you get too foolish, they smack you on the side of the head and you think, oh, maybe not that. And we're, like we're doing that to each other all the time, right? We do that with a raised eyebrow. We do that by having attention drift at a party. Uh, we do that by making a joke at someone's expense. Like we are calibrating each other nonstop all the time, extremely carefully. And so, and we're doing that while we're engaged in this collective computational exercise, which the market, the free market best optimizes. And then if you have a incorruptible source of the free market endeavor, right? It can't, it can't, be, it can't be gerrymandered in right. any way, then you hypothetically set up a situation so the least amount of interference with that computational process is possible. Right. Right. You're not entering, you're not putting noise into Maximal the system. Maximal signal, minimal noise. Yes, yes. exactly. Because right, right. you want, so you think, okay, the, here comes the horizon of the future. Oh no. How are we going to compute it? Well, we're each going to make decisions of value and we're going to put our money where our mouth is. And so, and then the whole economy can adjust itself as people make these tiny, small-scale, multitudinous decisions that keeps the whole thing alive and functioning. That only works if there isn't noise being introduced right. into the system. And so one of the things Bitcoin theorists push forward is the notion that you can't add additional noise to this computational mechanism. Right. And that might be right. This is one of the thing, things that really made me interested in Bitcoin. It's like, oh, okay, no interference with if the free market is a computational device, and if it's the device that enables us to adapt to the horizon of the future, it better be, because it's the only bloody device we have, unless you think central <laughs> planners are going to manage it. It's like, good luck with that. That's just not going to happen. And, and if that follows, it's this micro-experimentation, you know, at every front simultaneously yeah. with micro-failures occurring at the same time. You don't want noise that's not related to the actual environment introduced into that right. and hypothetically that's what fiat inflation for example Absolutely. does that's yeah, distortion yeah. of the market falsifying oh. the price signals that coordinate this distributed computing system we call the market that's constantly allowing us to adjust to the ever-changing reality yeah and hopefully you know the other thing a market does is lets us accumulate more capital so we're kind of pushing back the uncertainty in a way Oh, definitely. So, like, civilization is that bubble, right, of capital that we can buffer ourselves against the uncertainty of the world. Right, absolutely. And yeah, yeah, well, so yeah, so that's the secondary gain there. So you might say, well, on the one hand, you don't introduce excess noise. Mm -hmm. So, see, we could go one level deeper underneath this. It looks to me like we actually perceive the world through a structure of value. Mm -hmm. And so, and the reason... I believe that's the case is because you have to prioritize your perceptions because you can't look at everything, right? So you only look at what's important. Well, what's important? And the answer is you don't know. And so how do we calculate that? 
And the answer is, at least in part, we calculate that with free choices of value in the marketplace. And so, and you can, you can think of this very straightforwardly because you will, you will look at all things considered, you'll look at what other people are looking at, right? And so the market actually shows you, mm -hmm. the market actually shows you what's of value. Right. And you should pay attention to it because if a bunch of other people think it's valuable, that might well be valuable. And so, so you don't want anything to interfere with that structure of value that our perception itself is predicated on. And then you made a secondary point, which was, well, also, you don't want anything to interfere with your ability to store value for the future. Right. Yeah, well, that's, that's a completely, in, is it a completely independent benefit? I don't know if it's independent, but it's certainly a big benefit. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, I think so, the Austrian economists, economists would say that the, the higher fidelity or predictability of the money supply, let's say, the more uh, clear the rules of the game are, less noise in the channel, as we've said, and people are free to accumulate more capital. So this idea of Bitcoin being the, the pristine economic coordinator gives us perfect price signals in a way. So it lets us remap right. to reality much more quickly, drives innovation, drives wealth creation, all of these things. Um, there probably isn't any difference between being able to store value for the future and being able to trade with other people without distortion because the trade is a form of storage for the right, future. Right. And Every, so it's yeah. just an extension of that, right? Yes. Because partly what you do to store value for the future is you distribute it into other people yes. and pull it back when, when, you, when you see fit. Yeah, every so, trade that's voluntary, you're doing it only if it's incrementally valuable to you. So that would, in, in theory, if it's a voluntary trade, it's increasing your position, your capital position or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, and, and, if it, and if it's trustworthy, then you can rely on it. You know, one of the problems, one of the things that's really awful about inflation, as far as I can tell, you imagine yourself back in Germany at the end of World War I, and, uh, you know, you're one of those ants, not the grasshopper, and you've saved and scrimped, and, right. you know, you've foregone gratification, you've built up your storehouse of value for your pension, maybe you've, you're, you've taken care of your family, you did that through sacrifice, Right, because other people are out there fiddling away and you know drinking beer, and not you, man. Your nose to the grindstone, and you put aside your store of value, and then poof, hyperinflation. Yep. It's like, weren't you stupid? Yeah. Because you could have been out there fiddling and drinking, and instead you were scrimping and saving, and now you got nothing. Right. And, you know, at least those other people have what's left of their memory. <laughs> and um, and you know that's a that's. And that, the thing that's so catastrophic about that, possibly, is that that's actually a betrayal of precisely that which you least want to betray. Because you want to encourage people to have some faith in the future and make decisions that m make the delay of gratification uh, morally laudable and intelligent. And then, well, inflation is the it hurts those people the most. You're penalizing prudence. Absolutely, because people with debt, it's like, yeah, man, right. bring on the inflation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the people who were careful. Right. And, and then if you think there is a good, those are conscientious people, let's say, and there's an excellent literature looking at what makes people productive. Mm -hmm. And there are two cardinal dimensions of human variability that make people productive. One is general cognitive ability, that's often known as intelligence and formally measured as IQ. And part of the reason that that makes people 
more productive is because they're faster, you know, and more or less by definition, if one person does something and another person does it, the person who does it faster, if it's valuable, is doing it better. And general cognitive ability seems to be, in no small part, an index of something processing speed, right? Mm. And, and that, and conscientiousness, and trait conscientiousness, and that's dutifulness, it's a conservative virtue, by which I mean people who are high in trait conscientiousness tend to have conservative political leanings, uh, by the way. And uh, those are the people you punish like mad with inflation mm -hmm. because they're, 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 the bulk, they're the pillars of your society. If, it's, if your society, if you can define your society in some sense as a storehouse of deferred value, Right. which is a good way of describing like, what the hell good is a civilization if it doesn't do that, right? I mean, it Capital has to, accumulation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It has to allow you to accumulate what's necessary for security and thriving. So you want it to do that if you want a civilization. And then it's the conscientious people who strive to do that, and it's those you punish with right. inflation. Right. Inflation is decivilizing. Yes. Agreed with that completely. Yes, that seems... That seems multi-dimensionally accurate. <laughs> hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this special episode of the What Is Money Show with Jordan Peterson. I wanted to take a quick time out to give some gratitude to the people that helped make this event possible. As you probably know, this is the first in-person What Is Money episode we have ever done. Uh, we did this in front of a live studio audience of 700 people, and it simply would not have been possible without the help of some of these people I would like to mention to you now. The first sponsor I'd like to thank um, who was responsible for helping bring this special episode of the What Is Money Show to you today is Off The Chain Capital. Off The Chain Capital is led by Brian Estes, who's become a good friend of mine. Um, he is a huge proponent of Bitcoin education, in particular, the moral case for Bitcoin um, and we have an episode coming out together soon that I think you'll really enjoy. Off the Chain Capital is one of the number one performing hedge funds in the world over the past five years. Uh, they invest in and around the crypto asset ecosystem. Um, and as a value fund, they seek to outperform Bitcoin with less volatility. And they've been quite successful in that aim, given that they've outperformed Bitcoin in five out of the past five years. And they've done that with 80% less downside volatility than Bitcoin, which makes an investment fund like Off the Chain Capital a really great option for endowments, other large capital pools, and even first-time investors into the crypto asset space. The fund is open only to accredited investors. They have a $1 million minimum investment. And their goal is quite simple, um, and that is to do well so that their clients can do good. Um, and on a personal note, I would just like to Shout out Brian Estes's commitment to Bitcoin education. I think it really shines through in his work. And as I mentioned, we have an episode coming out together soon that I think you'll really enjoy. Money talks. How do we change the conversation? How do we balance the environment and human progress? Iris Energy is built on a unique idea that harnesses renewable energy to draw value from the booming Bitcoin network.
By building and owning real assets that mine green Bitcoin, we support local communities and develop sustainable energy infrastructure. Today, we secure Bitcoin, an emerging asset class and an increasingly valuable service to millions around the world. Tomorrow, we can power applications like AI, machine learning, and analytics. Technologies that will solve the puzzles and unlock new opportunities in areas like healthcare, engineering, and education. We build value without a cost to the planet. In a world where reducing our carbon footprint is not negotiable, Iris Energy is leaving green footprints everywhere we go. Next sponsor I would like to mention to you guys that brought this event to you is Swan Bitcoin. You know from listening to the show for a long time that our money is tragically broken. Uh, fortunately, we have Bitcoin, though, which is a better money that helps us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy, uh, the feeling can be quite disorienting. And I think a establishing a relationship with a trusted partner in this space to help you execute on a Bitcoin strategy is a really good idea. I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. Um, they're all Bitcoiners. They are a mission-driven organization, really focused on Bitcoin education, and they have deep expertise and respect within the Bitcoin space. This is the team you want on your side in developing and executing a Bitcoin strategy. Today, I think it would be most useful to highlight their private client services division, which was recently launched. It's an international enterprise, and it guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth in Bitcoin. At swanprivate.com, you can learn how this concierge services works, and they can give you direct access to a dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, by message, or by email. Uh, Swan Private Team will also guide you in terms of establishing uh, more complicated areas of Bitcoin, such as self-custody. Um, alternatively, you can also use their US regulated custodian, which has 45 billion AUM to store your Bitcoin, um, but they also provide um, self custody options as well. So when you make your first purchase with Swan Private, you get $100 in free Bitcoin. Just tell them I sent you. Uh, you know, an opportunity like this in Bitcoin to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company. It's not likely to be seen again in our lifetimes. And if you go to swanprivate.com today, just mention my name again, Robert Breedlove, to your advisor, and you'll get $100 in free Bitcoin, and you'll get access to all that this concierge service provides. Again, that's swanprivate.com, and just mention my name. The next sponsor I want to talk to you about that helped bring this event to you today is noah.com. They are the world's simplest Bitcoin wallet. And yes, this is Noah as in Noah from the Great Flood Myth. That's N-O-A-H.com. And you all know the story. You know the story of the Great Flood and the heroic Noah as it is rooted in almost every religion worldwide. It's a story of hope. It's a story of intelligent preparation. And it's a story of resilience in the face of disaster. And as we all know and feel today, history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme. And clearly we are at the threshold of a fiat induced economic disaster today. This time, however, Bitcoin, we consider to be 
our ark in the face of an onrushing flood of fiat currency and the commensurate inflation that is imposed upon all of us. Noah is quite simply a straightforward, simple Bitcoin app that refuses to leave anyone behind. Noah.com is Bitcoin for everyone. You can send Bitcoin to anyone in the world instantly. You can earn a high yield on your savings. You can live a full Bitcoin life with Noah's Bitcoin credit and debit cards, and you can earn rewards on virtually everything you do. So go to noah.com today. Again, N-O-A-H.com. Use my referral link below to unlock the Breed Love badge in the Noah app and start preparing yourself today against the flood of fiat currency. Next sponsor I would like to mention to you guys today is one of my favorite places to buy Bitcoin, and that is the exchange OKCoin. They are the fastest growing US-based exchange. They're serving over 190 countries globally, and they have a very easy onboarding experience and very low fees. And if you haven't tried them out yet, I would highly recommend it. Um, The other thing I like about OKCoin is that they are a mission-driven organization um, specifically focused on learning about and buying Bitcoin, making this process very easy, helping people go down the rabbit hole quickly, um, establishing an investment thesis on Bitcoin, and then starting to build a portfolio. Um, Also, they're on the cutting edge from an innovation standpoint. They are one of the only exchanges to integrate Lightning. Um, They've also been They've also been noted for contributing over $1 million to Bitcoin core developers. And they're also doing incredible work to further the Bitcoin ecosystem more generally. You can even get completely free recurring buys through OKCoin if you're building your portfolio with a little bit of Bitcoin at a time. And as they like to say over at OKCoin, we are all making the future okay with Bitcoin. So to get started, Go to okcoin.com backslash breedlove and get $50 in free Bitcoin just by signing up and making an initial deposit. Again, that's okcoin backslash breedlove for $50 in free Bitcoin just by signing up. The next sponsor I want to mention to you today that helped bring this episode to you is the Bitcoin Conference. We were actually at Bitcoin 2022 when we recorded this episode. And I'm super excited for next year's event, Bitcoin 2023. Bitcoin 2022 in Miami Beach was the largest Bitcoin event in history. I think it had around 35,000 people in total. And it made international headlines as Bitcoiners from every part of the world gathered for education, celebration, and hopefully one day, hyper-Bitcoinization. Now, you can lock in the lowest prices of the year for next year's event, Bitcoin 2023. You can get your general admission ticket for just $249 or your well pass for $4,999. And today, by using the promo code BREEDLOVE, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E, you can save $21 on a GA ticket and $210 on a well pass. This is a limited time offer and ticket prices will start increasing very soon and they keep increasing all the way up until the time of the event. So jump on to B dot tc backslash conference and register for bitcoin 2023 early bird rates today again that's b.tc backslash conference discount code breed love 
Next sponsor, I would like to mention to you guys that brought this event to you today is Looking Glass Education. In our current economic environment of immense debt, high inflation, and a widening wealth inequality, it can at times feel impossible for wage earners to get ahead. And that's exactly what the team at Looking Glass noticed and decided to do something about. If you want to learn more about the global monetary system or simply need a resource to send your friends and family to, look no further than Looking Glass Education. They are a free, all-in-one educational platform built with the intention of empowering individuals to take control of their financial future. Looking Glass's focus is on building and showcasing timeless educational content that is easy to read and, very importantly, free of jargon. But even more importantly, they are striving to highlight the ingenuity and potential of Bitcoin and remove the veil of complexity that currently shrouds our monetary and economic systems today. For more information, you can find them on Twitter at LookingGlassEDU or check out their website at LookingGlassEducation.com. And if you're not sure where to start with their coursework, just check out the free course titled Debt, Inflation, and the Bigger Picture. You guys know how passionate I am about education. I really hope um, you'll check out Looking Glass's content and let me know what you think. And I hope you find their content to be valuable. The last sponsor I'd like to give a shout out to is Trammel Venture Partners, also known as TVP, which is a venture capital firm based in Austin, Texas, led by Christopher Calicott and Matthew Snow. They have launched the industry's first institutional venture fund series focused exclusively on Bitcoin startups. Um, and the fund is advised by several major Bitcoiners like myself, Mark Moss, Corey Clipston, and others. I'll link to TVP fund information in the show notes along with the rest of the sponsorship information. And with that, let's get back to the Jordan Peterson interview. Thank you so much. If we could... Pivot into another topic you've done beautiful, excellent work on, the logos. And I know I'm not going to try to define this, or I know that's an infinite rabbit hole, but just this idea of the word effectively being the medium of exchange of human intention, right? When we're saying, we're communicating, I use words to communicate an idea to you. I'm intending to propagate a message to you. Yeah, you probably use words to communicate value. Which, which ties so. it more tightly to what we've been talking about. Yeah, and then in, you know, I would map that also to money is yeah. something, a medium of exchange of human action, right? This is something that's actually been done in the world, capital created, uh, value created or not created, right? Your profit and loss is telling you. Are your, ac- are your actions benefiting society? Are you profitable, as we talked about earlier? Yeah. Or are you generating a loss? Meaning that it's not valuable enough to people based on the economic inputs into the product or service. Yeah. So... You know, totalitarianism, another topic you've done a lot of great work on, they always attack freedom of speech, right? It's uh, unnecessary. Freedom of speech is not necessary. Not if you're a totalitarian. Right, because you know like everything. You, you already know everything. You know it's everything. Like, you, what, you don't need any new ideas. Get the hell away from me with those. And so all there's <laughs> countless examples of totalitarians attacking the freedom of speech. Indeed, it's one of the first things they do. Right? Yeah, they try so to take it's over almost the media. an unerring hallmark of the totalitarian yes. mind. And the other unerring hallmark is the central bank. So Marx's 1848 Manifesto of the Communist Party, measure number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. 
Yeah, that sounds like Marx. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, okay, words. Jesus, what a dismal sentence that is. <laughs> <laughs> so we have words. How many people died because of that sentence? Like tens of millions of people. Over a hundred million, right? That, yeah. that sentence. So. Jesus. The word is a medium of exchange for intention. Money is a medium of exchange for action. If totalitarianism necessitates the corruption and control of the words and money, can't we at least limit the threat of totalitarianism by using a technology that makes our money incorruptible? Well, that's the idea. And by extension, this goes a little bit deeper on Bitcoin, but in theory, and there's projects out there, that you can build communication protocols on top of Bitcoin that make your communications unstoppable. So we could have true freedom of speech in the digital space. Yeah. Isn't, well, that, well, isn't that a bulwark against well, totalitarianism? Well, look, look, y yes, yes, I would say so. And the, the, you run into the free rider problem, you know, head on, and that's a big problem because we talked a little bit about this earlier that there are exploitative types the psychopathic types, and they're about 3% of the population cross-culturally. And it isn't obvious how you control them in a system like the one that you're describing. Free market system? Yeah. I think you could yeah. still have um, prisons, police, all of those things, um, but it's just not systemized on, I, I, the property right violations aren't systemized via inflation and these things. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I mean, it, look, it's a, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's a worthy experiment and doesn't seem to have any self-evident psychological or logical flaws. When I mean, we've been building an argument from first principles mm -hmm. here to some degree, we could talk about the logos again, and about the proclivity of totalitarians to, to squelch free speech. It could be that our communication is always about value, mm -hmm. right? Because what else would you communicate about? I mean, what do you want to know right. from someone? You want to know what they value. That might be all you want to know about them. Is that an overstatement? Probably not. I think Me. actions an expression of value, and ultimately we're talking about acting in the world. Yeah. So I don't. I don't right. Right. Well, that. that's it. That's right. And I, I mean, certainly advertisers pay for your attention. Mm -hmm. They're paying for the process by which you. They're paying to engage themselves in the process by which you determine value, and so language is language is a medium for the exchange of information about value. We could say. And so, is money any different than that? And the answer to that could well be no. They might be the same thing. And so, is Bitcoin an incorruptible language? Probably not, because that would be a hell of a thing if it was true, right? I mean, so it's just, it just strikes me as, as unlikely that we've managed that. But it isn't obvious to see where there's a flaw in that. Well, you know what's different, I think, between words and money, let's say, is that words are low-cost signal. You can say a lot of words. You can mislead people and all of this. But money tends to be a costly signal. If true. You, if you put your skin in the game, you put capital in, at risk, right, to do something, that's a much more, uh, what would they say, 
credible. High cost signal. So, yeah, well, yes. I, think, I think part of the problem with social media platforms is that the cost of, of words is zero. Right. Yes. And that's the wrong cost. Yes. Partly because people, the psychopath types in particular, are terrible on social media platforms because they can say and do things that would get them thrashed if they were doing them yes. in the real world, and there's no cost. We have, I mean, there's a lot of experiments in the, the space. I've got a friend here running a company called Zion, and they are aiming to fix that, actually. It's just add a cost to communication in digital space, and you flush all that out. You increase the quality of discourse in digital reality just by making it non-zero, as you're describing. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to say this to you. We think Bitcoin fixes that, <laughs> Dr. Peterson. Yeah, well, that would be It's lovely. early, but it's, it's promising, at least, so... Yeah, do you have any sense of why people would move to platforms where communication was maybe because the psychopaths would be there? <laughs> it's a complicated question to break the network effects of something like Twitter right. and whatnot, but there are financial incentives to own your own data too. Because right now your attention's being sold on these networks. You keep, like, you're not paid yeah. for being on Twitter. I mean, maybe you are, but most no. people aren't. <laughs> In this world of owning your own data, like a, a decentralized, Bitcoinized Twitter, you would, in theory, be able to selectively monetize your attention. Right. So that incentive could break the network effect of something like Twitter. Um, good. Yeah. yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> well, we don't want to build. We don't want to build social communication networks that aren't viable, that aren't valid analogs of our real-world communication networks. You know, and I've been thinking this through psychologically, I suppose, for the last couple of months. Um, what do you, what do you, what happens if you have a widespread communication system that doesn't abide by the same incentive structures that real world communication mm -hmm. abides by? And I think Twitter is a good example of that, primarily because the cost of being um, provocative in real life is zero. And so that's an externalized cost you know, we, we have these ideas about the, free, the market not being a, uh, uh, um, a, a comprehensive indicator of value. There's externalized costs, pollution, for example, mm -hmm. market failure. Well, Twitter externalizes its pollution hmm. because, because it isn't an analog of real-world communication systems. It introduces insanity into the communication structure because I think technically a communication system that doesn't abide by the rules of real-world communication systems is insane. That's the, yes. the definition of it. Yeah, there's a parasitical element for sure. And so, and so adding, the, getting the incentives right, this is a really, this is a crucial issue, right? And of course, that's why we're talking about all of this is that the, the cost of communication in a virtual world mm -hmm. has to be analogous to the cost of communication in the real world right. or the system is insane. Right. Uh, I think that might be, might be true. Right, right. So, There's a cost of being a schmuck in the real world, but not so much on Twitter. And that's right. There's a real, like yeah. people, say, people say things on Twitter all the time that they would never say once in their life because right. if they ever said them, <laughs> someone would kill them. <laughs> so, Completely you know, it agree. would come to blows immediately. Yeah. And, yeah. I would plug um, one series I did actually with Michael Saylor. He goes in depth how he thinks Bitcoin could fix this. Um, and it's, it's a longer discussion, but yeah, I would no plug doubt. that here. Can we talk about time? 
So as your work brilliantly points out, um, the fall of man was effectively the discovery of time, which was also the realization that we must work. Right? And for all these reasons we're, we're describing, we're always vulnerable, we must always prepare for the future. And through work, we're effectively sacrificing the present to the future, right? That's delayed gratification, that's capital accumulation, that's the ethic of capitalism. But debt is the exact opposite, right? We're sacrificing the future to the present. We're accelerating gratification, engaging in dissaving, um, and it's effectively the, the opposite of work, right? To take on debt and buy something instead of working and saving for it. So another framing for fiat currency that I think is useful is that it is a debt-based money. So as you were describing earlier, inflation destroys savers, right? It destroys prudence, and it actually incentivizes its opposite. I am incentivized to accumulate as much debt as possible, knowing that inflation will erode that real debt burden over time. Yeah, so, well, there's certainly a moral hazard there, especially for governments. It's and I think, so the Austrians would say that this is raising your time preference, which is to say makes you think shorter term. Yeah. And that uh, concept of time preference is inexorably related to the moral standard. So the Austrians have actually written the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked. If you're debasing the currency, you're inducing immorality, like gambling, debt accumulation, short-sightedness, all of these things. Yeah, so as we, that seems right. So as we said earlier, it's decivilizing in more ways than one. So yeah. my, my question would be, you know, if we're going to construct a sustainable civilization, one that's going to stand the test of time, yeah. shouldn't we aim to remove the avenues of wealth acquisition that involve, I'll, I'll say, taking, which would be uh, inflation, taxation, yeah, theft, well, rent-seeking? It's, it's, it's interesting, you know, because one of the things that's happening now with the rise of these ESGs, um, so, you know, there are all sorts of people who are hypothetically concerned that our time horizon isn't long enough and we're burning the planet at our own expense, right? We're destroying the planet for future generations, I suppose, assuming they care about future generations, which I generally doubt. But in any case, that's our moral crime. And mm -hmm. it's associated with um, a, an, a kind of an impulse of hedonism. And so the cure for that appears to be more central planning. And I think that's a really bad idea because if the market system is a computational mechanism that allows us to value the transforming horizon of the future, right. then imposing a fiat solution on that interferes with our ability to adapt. Right. And so you might think, well, no, 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 because my solution is correct. It's like, well, even if you're right, which you aren't, <laughs> but even if you were right for how long? Right. You know, like two weeks, a month, things change, man. You think your solution is right forever? And so now we've got this situation where corporations are increasingly being judged on their sustainability. Right. It's like, try computing sustainability. This is the time preference problem, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's not possible. It's actually not possible. Partly because as you compute out into the future, your error margins grow until you know, everybody going to plan 60 years down the road? How the hell can you do that? No one envisioned the world we're in 60 years ago. I mean, I read science fiction when I was a kid 40 years ago. Everyone was in rockets traveling from planet to planet, but nobody had a home-based computer or computing device that, you know, was more powerful than the entire Apollo program in the palm of their hand. So we just got that 100% wrong. And so we don't know how to 
by fiat determine sustainability. Yeah. And I think we're going to make a bloody mess of things trying to do that. Your point would be, well, the proper way to incentivize sustainability would be to produce an incorruptible store of value. And so, hey, yeah. good theory. Well, and giving, in addition to that, giving people an option for a property right that cannot be preyed upon by the state, right? So that, so we know in every business, like if you go to buy a car and you can't come to terms with a guy, you can always walk out of the door, right? You can always go to his competitor and that effectively keeps him honest. Whereas if he's the mon monopolist, he's the only guy on the block, then he'll charge you whatever he wants. He doesn't care about your preferences. We haven't had this exit option in money ever. You, know, you could bury gold in your backyard, but that's not very practical. Hard yep. to lug it around, et cetera, et cetera. So, Bitcoin's kind of this like honesty forcing function on state behavior and that yeah. if they're excessively oppressive or excessive regulation, taxation, whatever it is, people can exit into this property right that's independent of the state. Yeah, well, I've read already, and I, I, I'm no economist and I'm certainly no Bitcoin expert, but I've read already that countries that attempted to clamp down hard on Bitcoin saw a depreciation in their own currency's value on currency trading markets yes. because the market read that as insufficient um, faith in the validity of their own currency. Right. And that's, that's pretty damn interesting. I, I think it's true. I, 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 and, and, you know, so even if, even if Bitcoin becomes nothing other than that kind of corrective, that, would, that wouldn't be nothing. That would be, that would be quite something. So I don't see any, any logical flaws in that, in that formulation. I mean, Robert and I were talking about this a little bit backstage. I don't want to preempt the discussion, but you know, I'm, I'm as a trained social scientist and a, a pessimistic one in some sense, I'm always looking for the unexpected consequence. That's also what makes me somewhat conservative, I would say, in my political leanings. Bitcoin is a radical social experiment, and do you worry, do you worry, Bitcoiners in general, do you worry that by replacing a fiat currency, or the fiat currency, or any fiat currency maybe, ultimately, are we going to destabilize things that fiat currencies are doing that we don't understand? You know, like how much utility is there? Is there utility in allowing your government, assuming it's regulated by vote and it's a free society, is there utility in allowing the government to make fundamental financial decisions that Bitcoin would um, threaten, you know, in a negative way? And like I said, I'm not an economist and, and I know there are arguments about why that won't be the case, but, but arguments in reality aren't the same thing. As I, I said to you backstage, you know, and quoting you actually, there is stability in the hierarchy, even if that hierarchy is somewhat tyrannical. So this, this is a massive change, right? If this, is, yes. if this is actually the disruption of gold, well, the whole world's built on top of gold right now. Central banking's built on top of gold. Nation states are built on top of the central bank. So there could be a period of instability, let's say. Very hard to say where it goes. But this idea of uh, removing coercion from the socioeconomic fabric, I mean, it increases wealth, increases human happiness, increases psychological stability in the long run, right? That's so the problem, right? It that's, seems the time that's the problem, right? Right. It's the time preference problem. Yes. And, and it's always, this is also the problem with the ap apocalyptic doomsaying of the environmentalists. Like, mm -hmm. well, you were wrong. 
well, we're out by 30 years. Right. And they can always say that. Well, that's right. That's yeah. that. Well, um, but but they and yeah. they can always right. say that. And the Fed does this too. Mm-hmm. Every time there's an economic disaster and they intervene, they say, "Well, it would have been worse had we not intervened." Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's unfalsifiable, right? <laughs> yes. Well, this is also partly why we pr- fall prey so frequently to apocalyptic thinking, you know. And, and it, it might be a fatal flaw in our cognitive mechanism. It's like, well, prove the apocalypse isn't going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> you know, there are runaway processes and they, they emerge unpredictably. And so the climate catastrophists could, in principle, be right. My, my problem with that is, well, there's an indefinite number of apocalyptic catastrophes. And so what are we going to do? Pay attention to every single one of them at the same time? Like, right. why should your apocalyptic catastrophe take precedence? Yeah. And, you know, the answer to that generally is because I think I'm right. It's like, well, that's just not good enough. And so... So well, so back to the back to, back to the to the to the Bitcoin issue. Would we produce a more sustainable society if we had a less corruptible store of long-term value? Pro- I can't see how we w- couldn't. Right. We'd extend our time frame out to some degree, right? Because now the currency is unstable, right. and that's factored into all the economic decisions that we make. Yeah. And if we stabilize the currency, so it it. It didn't vary as much over the time frames that we can compute. Right. I suspect that would make us more yeah. future-oriented. Yeah, you're incentivizing prudence, right? The opposite of inflation. Yeah. And reward those that are competent. Move us away from a dominance hierarchy to a competence hierarchy. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of us who believe that such things exist. <laughs> I want to touch on another topic. I mean, this has been very transformative in my life personally, I think for a lot of people, but your work on responsibility. Um, just the idea of taking as much responsibility as you can in every situation, I, it's just transformative from the inside out. I want to try to tie this to something a lot of my work touches on, which is just the concept of property. And I think I've mentioned this to you previously. We always talk about property rights, is what you typically hear. But as you've said, rights and responsibility are two sides of the same coin. If you have a right to three hot meals a day, well, that's someone's responsibility to prepare those meals. It yeah, just which is why you sky. don't have that right. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea, like, and, and when, if you own a car, for instance, right, you have the rights to enjoy that car, but you're also responsible for the maintenance of that vehicle. Right? That is what the property relationship is incentivizing or instantiating. Yeah. So if we have this civilization that's, where we have rampant violations of private property via inflation largely, but also taxation and regulation, aren't we inducing irresponsibility? And how, do, how can we have unstable or, un, uh, let's say, viable property and a culture premised on responsibility at the same time when we're undermining the very economic relationship that instantiates responsibility? Yeah, well, that's, that, that's, that's a reflection of the same argument. I mean, again, I guess I would, I would wonder, are there forms of irresponsibility that would, unexpected forms of irresponsibility that would manifest themselves if we switch to Bitcoin? So, for example... To what degree would that make tax evasion not only possible but virtually certain? I think it makes taxation gone forever. Okay, well, fair, fair enough. But then, <laughs> so then you'd say, well, new new forms of social organization 
you know, make themselves manifest as a consequence of that transformation. But that's kind of a hand-waving answer, right? I mean, we use taxation to pay for a lot of things that we haven't been able to bring under the rubric of market force. And sometimes that's long-term, really, really long-term investment, infrastructure investment, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So what do you envision replacing taxation? I would say that my views are very much aligned with libertarian philosophers that we can solve a lot of these problems through mutual voluntary exchange. It's very hard to talk right, so about. So you see the free market expanding. Yes, because if there's a want, right, and people are voting on this want with their buying and selling behavior, then you can solve any problem of any size. You don't need non-consensual exchange to solve a bigger problem. That's nonsensical. But we've lived in this rubric of statism throughout our whole history where we've always had to deal with this monkey on our back. Well, so, the, okay, so let, fine, fine. Let's, let's delve into that a little bit. If it hasn't been necessary, wh why do you think it happened? Because property has been viable. It can be done. So if there's a path to wealth acquisition that I don't have to work, I can just take your stuff, then that's a so business model. So you see it as a moral hazard, essentially. I see Bitcoin as a very expensive, if not impossible, property to violate. So that holds a check on statism, right, which is based on the violation of property. The whole business model Woo! derives all its revenue from the violation of property. And Bitcoin, in theory, held correctly, there's a lot of building to be done, is effectively inviolable property. Yeah, well, maybe we'll get lucky, you know, and, and well, and, and what will happen is that Bitcoin will roll itself out incrementally, you know, within the confines of the free market system as it currently exists, and we'll be able to test these pro prognostications yep. one by one without any revolutionary catastrophes, and we'll be able to find out. I don't know, for example, have you been keeping an eye on what's happening in El Salvador? How, how's that experiment working? Because I don't know. I wish there was an economist here as well. Not that you're not one, but one that was opposed to your views. Right, right. You take me outside of my domain of competence to a large degree. But So what's happening in El Salvador? What, well, I can't attest to great knowledge there, but I do plan on visiting this year. Um, I hear good things, is all I can say so far. But um, agreed, experimentation will tell us if it's working or not, right? But yeah. Were the libertarians right or not? I guess we'll see. Um, maybe this is a good transition to a really deep topic, which is the Philosopher's Stone. Because here, here is, we have faith in some ideal that you're accurately saying. We don't really know if it will work. We have this long literature of Austrian economics and libertarianism saying that we needed the sly roundabout way to take money out of the hands of government to build a sustainable civilization, but we don't actually know because we've never seen it. And this I mean, maybe you could just introduce the Philosopher's Stone. Wasn't this premised on working towards this ideal of some incorruptible substance that would save the world or serve as an antidote to tyranny? And this is an excerpt from your book, Maps yeah, of Meaning, no, by I, the way. I recognized it. I, yeah. <laughs> I wrote each of those sentences like 50 times. Yeah. They're pretty much embedded in my brain. Um, well, we've certainly been searching forever for an incorruptible storehouse of value. Yes. That, that's definitely the right. case. And that is associated, at least in part, with 
our realization for the necessity of work because yep. work doesn't work without a storehouse of value. Right. And you know, interestingly enough, a, a lot of where you store value is in your reputation, mm-hmm. right? Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the original store value. Is yeah, the, the original yeah. store of value. Well, even now, for that matter, your 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 uh, brand, the value of your brand is the value of your represent of your reputation. The brand just represents your reputation, and so the the incorruptible storehouse of value is your reputation. And, and you know, there is a religious element to that idea because that's in some sense the idea of storing up treasure in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, the more incorruptible you are as a person, the better your reputation. And that's the most reliable storehouse of value you have. And that's right, that's true. And it, it's, it's kind of surprising that we don't know that so pra- pragmatically. I guess it's partly because we're still possessed by a kind of Marxist guilt about our productive enterprises. You know, we, 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 we are kind of enticed into believing that if we store value, there's something selfish about that. Right. But that's not the case at all if it's the case that the best place to store value is in your reputation and therefore you, you want to be the most ethical actor possible. And I would say that would also be the person who's most fun to play with. You know, when we could think about that technically for a second, and I think this is worth doing. Some of you may have heard me talk about this before, but um, you know, parents often tell their children when they're playing a game, they say, uh, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it matters how you play the game. And they often tell that to children who are bad losers or bad winners, because you can be both. And if you're a bad winner, then maybe you're highly skilled, but you hog the ball and you're not a good team player and you're just no fun. You win, but you're just no fun. And if you're a bad loser, the same thing. And what parents are telling their children in some sense is, don't win at the cost of being no fun. And you might say, well, why is that relevant? And the answer is, well, if people don't find you fun to play with, then they won't play with you and you lose. And so you might win the game, but you lose life. You lose your life. And so your reputation is a reflection of, right. of your desirability as a voluntary play partner. How many really games is. you're invited to, right? You bet, right. you bet. How, and, and to think about it as invitation is yep. right. You know, I, I've been talking to some religious people, lots of them, and uh, Islamic people and Jewish people and Christian people um, primarily. And I've been trying to conceptualize the relationship between religious schools. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that I talked to an Islamic traditionalist a while back, um, Muhammad Hijab was his name, and um, that went, it was very interesting. And one of the things that was extremely interesting about it, it's kind of a rough conversation to begin with because he was sort of hammering at me for a, a, a while. Um, but after, after that died down, we actually had a conversation and it was quite a productive conversation. We talked about the use of force in belief because hmm. I, I, you know, say, well, in, 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 among Islamic traditionalists, is your belief a matter of voluntary choice? Hmm. And he insisted that the answer to that was yes, fundamentally. And I thought, well, that's lovely to hear that stated as an explicit principle because then 
hypothetically all of us could start to conceptualize the conflict, the competition between religious traditions most properly undertaken mm -hmm. would be a competition between invitations. Hmm. You think, you know, so if you, if, you, if you want to evangelize most effectively, how do you do that? Well, the answer is by example and by being the sort of person that other people want to be around and be like. Hmm. And that's, if, if you want to shine the light of your religious belief, it's either that or compulsion. Right. Right, and maybe we won't trust the people who use compulsion. How about that? Whereas, so, okay, so we one roll this back. Um, you store your... You store value in your reputation, and that means you store value in the ethics of your behavior. The Bitcoin notion, I suppose, in some sense, is you have an unerring marker for that now. Right. So, well, I would, I would, hey, that'd be something. If I could add true. here, perhaps, too, that we would also seek to store our economic value and the money with the best reputation. Right? That's what the, right. the U.S. dollar is currently, what gold is historically. Yeah, and, and those are promises. Yes. Like fundamentally, we, you know, you could ask, well, what is money? Money is a promise. Yes, right. So it's based on trust. Contract with the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and with strangers, mm -hmm. right? With people you don't know, which is really quite remarkable. Right. And so it's all dependent on interpersonal trust. And well, that's dependent on all sorts of fundamental things. Right. Um, but because it's dependent on trust, you would think the most trustworthy currency, well, Hopefully that would be the yeah. one that rises to the top. Yeah, there's a work by a great thinker in the space named Nick Zabo, and he actually describes money as the trust-minimized asset. And what he means by that is that wherever you can store your economic value that's maximally insulated from the opinions and actions of others, you don't need to trust others, right? We don't need to trust, I don't right. need to trust right. that you trust gold. Gold just has a market cap by the free right. market. We can trust by, we can trust by assumption. Yes, exactly. Yes, and that, so that, that no actually inter, constitutes minimizing, wealth. Minimizing interpersonal trust to maximize Absolutely, well, I mean, I had this experience. Uh, I played a lot with eBay, and eBay was, when it first made itself manifest, there, people were uh, trying to market um, what do you call that? Huh. I write you a check that bounces and... Auction. You send me junk, and that's <laughs> and eBay dies, and so you have a third party verify the transactions, right? right? Escrow, yeah, escrow. escrow. Okay. So people marketed their escrow um, services for eBay, and for a percentage of the transaction, they would verify the exchange. But it turned out that people were so honest, it was unnecessary, like seriously unnecessary. And then if you played on eBay for any length of time, you soon came to realize they started eventually putting in reputational markers, right, which was percentage of satisfied customers. And if you fell below, like, if you were, if 98% of your customers were satisfied, you were doing a bad job. Like, if you were a good seller, it was 99 or 100. Some of them, some of them many people with 10,000 transactions had 100% ratings. And so that was so cool to see because and it shows you how civilized a society can be where the default exchange between geographically distant strangers who will never meet again is honesty. Yeah. And you think that's, that's the sign of wealth. That's the unerring sign of wealth. If you live in a culture where the default transaction between strangers is honest exchange, yeah. everyone's rich. And this was premised on the transparency. 
This case with eBay was premised both on the transparency of the system and presumably the predictability of the rules, right? The reputation system, how it works. Yeah, that, well, that, yes. So certainly eBay was set up so it didn't interfere with that. Right. But I, also th I think it was predicated on something even deeper than that, which was that people, and this, this is, I, I really like this because, you know, the postmodern types, the Marxists, as we talked about earlier, I know that postmodernists and Marxists aren't the same, but what happens to postmodernists is they sneak Marxism in mm -hmm. to fill all the gaps that their theory would otherwise have, and then they pretend they're not doing it, but they are. And in any case, you know, the Marxist presupposition is that it's mutual exploitation that defines our economic relationship. But what if it's mutual trust? Mm -hmm. And I think eBay is a great example of that. It's like, no, it wasn't exploitation because that was certainly possible. It was mutual trust. And, you know, eBay unfroze a lot of capital. Yes. Right? And the reason it wasn't even so much that it was a technological revolution, although it was in some sense, the reason it could do that is because the default transaction between Americans is trust. Mm. And that's something, man. That's a hell of an accomplishment. Mm. So that's another example of the storage of value in reputation. Yes. yes. You know, you, you guys, speaking broadly, your culture is so bloody civilized that you can, you can depend on the integrity of strangers almost all the time. And just think about how easy that makes your life. Because when you were talking about trust earlier, it's like, well, you have to earn my trust, let's say, in, in a society that's skeptical. You know how bloody hard it is to earn someone's trust? Very expensive. Oh, my God, yeah. it takes forever. And one, one exception can violate it. Yeah. And here we are in this unbelievably fortunate circumstance that characterizes free societies where, no, I'll just trust you, how that'll, how'll that be? It's like, well, what and kind of fool are you? You just trust a stranger. It's like... And technologies are so impactful on this because who would have imagined we now summon a car on a smartphone and jump into the back seat with a stranger? For yeah, Uber right, ride. absolutely. But again, based on that reputation system, it's, yeah, or uh, use Airbnb, right. you know, or right. like one, one of the things I always thought of as completely miraculous, I've never been able to get accustomed to renting a car at an airport. It's like, it's so ridiculous. Mm. You can just fly somewhere that you've never been, where no one knows you, and you can give this guy a card, and he'll give you an $80,000 car that's brand new. It's like, <laughs> here it is. Sorry it took five minutes. Yeah, well, <laughs> next time maybe you could do it a little quicker. We'll do our best. And, and, and that's, that's a, complete, it's a complete bloody miracle that that works. You think about how unlikely that is, and yet it, people just take it for granted. And yeah. it's all predicated on this underlying trust and, yes. and, and on reputational integrity. Yes, and, so. and I want to give credit to your work here again because it goes all the way down to the Judeo-Christian substructure, right? It's almost like we've been building this system of trust um, up to the point where we have this culture around us that we're almost blind to, but it adds, it minimizes the transaction cost of establishing trust, right. which unlocks economic abundance. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, there's no, there's no natural, there might be no natural resource other than trust. Like it's the fundamental. I read a good economic analysis at one point of Japan. You know, Japan has almost no natural resources, mm. but it's a society characterized by a tremendous amount of interpersonal integrity. Yeah. And so they can get a long way, and they do, and right. did. Right. And so trust, it's, it's why it's also so t t terrifying to see the 
erosion of public trust in, in public institutions, and a lot of that's a consequence of the ill-advised use of compulsion. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'd like to get into one last deep topic here, which is Christ. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I would go somewhere. Y- your book. This is the conclusion to Maps of Meaning, and you write that Jesus said, "Do not tell lies, and do not do what you hate." For all things are plain in the sight of heaven. For nothing hidden will not become manifest, and nothing covered will remain without being uncovered. And you also, you know, another line in your book, you said that the known serves as the protection against the unknown. And that line always really struck me because I think money is kind of the technological implementation of that. Like we've been looking for the most certain asset to store economic value in. That's effectively what gold was. It had the most predictable supply across time. Um, couldn't be destroyed very easily, so it was fairly indestructible, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think as Bitcoiners, that's what we think Bitcoin has perfected. We've created a money that's composed of perfect information. All right, we know it has 21 million. We know exactly what its issuance is. There's nothing hidden in Bitcoin, and that is its value. It's just absolute transparency, with no deception, no falsehood. And we touched on the philosopher's stone a little bit, but one of the ways that it was defined was, you know, we've been pursuing this for thousands of years to instantiate the principles of Christ in matter or in an abstract concept or an ideal. Well, it is a, it is a, it is a system of value. Yes. And so th- that, that analogy has to be appropriate at some level. I mean, as, you know, we've already wandered through the notion that there's a tight relationship between your ethics and, and your reputation and a tight relationship between your reputation and the storage of value. And like, that's, that's really worth thinking through. And, and you, you have to decide for yourself, I think, whether or not you believe it's true. Um, as an ethical actor, are you most protected against the vagaries of existence by being an ethical actor? I would say that actually in some profound sense, defines what it means to be an ethical actor. Why would we consider something that didn't have that characteristic ethical? We'd just die if that was the case. That would be so counterproductive. I think what we regard as ethical in the highest sense is that which enables us to store value across the longest period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. How could it be otherwise? And so that means that you, well, if you, if you believe that, if you believe that, that will change your life because you start taking what you do a lot more seriously if you believe that. And so is there a necessary interplay between the ethic, like the religious ethic and the monetary system? What does it say on the dollar bill? Isn't it in God we trust? Yeah, but the actuality is in Fed we trust. Yeah, well, so it's corrupted, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you, you Bitcoin purists might be right about your presuppositions. Um, it's, well, we've wandered through a fair bit of conceptual territory today. I don't see any obvious manner in which the presuppositions of the Bitcoin community violate fundamental psychological principles. Mm. Quite the contrary. But, you know, like I said, I'm not an economist, that's for sure, and, and there's lots of things I don't know, so I'd hesitate to give it my unwarranted stamp of approval, you know, for whatever that's worth, and very little. Um, but. It's, a, it's an extremely interesting experiment, and, you know, it, I find it quite compelling, the idea of a, 
incorruptible storehouse of value. There's another really interesting aspect to this that I don't know how much you've looked into, but like the work of John Vallis, who you met earlier, he really explores the personal transformations in the lives of Bitcoiners. And it's leading, myself included, has led me back to traditional values, right? Led me back to Christianity. It's changed my lifestyle in a lot of ways. It changes your diet, changes... What, why do you think that is? I think it's something to do with time preference. Like just this idea of being able to store your energy in something that's incorruptible and predictable that you can have broadens your time horizons. Yeah, yeah. So it's making you more timeless or something. I, yeah. yeah so, so, and and that, that, that relates back to the Philosopher's Stone where you describe this, you know, to create a, um, uh, a technological development in the Philosopher's Stone required a moral development. There was like this co-creative process. Yeah. So I've, I've found it very interesting to see that happen in the lives of Bitcoiners, and it's... Yeah, well, it does, and the, t the time preference issue does make sense, because uh, it's certainly the case that I believe that morality emerges out of iterated games, iterated voluntary right. games. So what we regard as moral is the principle that most aptly governs the longest-term iterated games. Right. And that's something like the sustainability that, you know, that people are struggling to attain. Right. And I think we have moral intuitions that indicate to us when that is being manifested in people's behavior. Yeah. That we find them reliable and trustworthy. Right. We find them ethical. And I do think that's associated with a longer time horizon. Mm -hmm. uh, maturity, certainly, there's almost no difference between maturity and a longer time horizon. Right. They're almost identical yeah. in some sense. And so it could be that Bitcoin, by increasing your faith in the future, yeah. does disincline you to fiddle while Rome burns. Right. You know, could, could be, could be. And we, another thing you talk about a lot, this idea of uh, mimesis, where we're constantly imitating one another, you know, it seems to me if we had hierarchies of competence rather than dominance, that the prudent are not being penalized, they're actually at the type, the top of the wealth hierarchy, that that would actually change the, the values that are imitated. So you could actually purify society to some extent, maybe, the behaviors that actually win you wealth in the world versus, you know. Well, that, I mean. We if, have Putin if, with a $200, $200 billion net worth that's purely extractive. I think that's pretty bad that people would copy his behaviors. Whereas in a yeah. world where you couldn't take money to get to that level in the wealth hierarchy, it would be propagating better behaviors throughout society. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you detach exploitation from success, mm -hmm. you're certainly going yes. to decrease the probability that exploitative patterns are going to be imitated. Yes. They're going to be imitated, and we know this already, that it's definitely in places where the time horizon is extremely shortened that hyper-aggressive strategies make themselves manifest. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, or even just, just competition at the street level, mm -hmm. you know. Without that time horizon, you grab and run, fundamentally. Right, right. And so, like I said, this makes sense. That doesn't mean it's correct. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the fact that it is being played out in this experimental manner, in this competitive manner, I think the danger to the Bitcoin community, and this will probably happen sooner rather than later, is that you'll get clamped down on hard. Mm. 
And that strikes me as highly probable. I think that the way that's likely to happen is that the governments will try to instigate, instigate, implement their own digital currencies mm -hmm. and then do everything they can to squash out competitors. And like, you think fiat currency is bad, you wait till it's fiat currency with a digital spin, oh, man. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. wait till people can track all of your purchases and decide using some scheme of fiat when you're acting unethically with regards to your choice of, let's say, consumer item. Right. Do you really need that automobile? That'll be the next question, you know, coming out down the pipes in, in yes. the next 10 years. What makes you think you should have an automobile mm -hmm. when the whole planet is at stake? Right. It's like, yeah, well, who made you final arbiter of value? Right. Yeah. And yeah. to fight that tyranny, we need faith in an ideal. And I guess that's what Bitcoin represents to us. So. Yeah, well, hopefully it's a practicality, too. Yeah. But, you know, that's the other thing. That's the other thing that's kind of admirable about the Bitcoin community. Um, delusional though it may be, <laughs> let's say, at least you're bloody well put your money where your mouth is. Uh, you know, yeah. well, that's something, isn't it? Uh, it's, not just, it's not just, as you said, it's not just cheap talk. Right. You're willing to stake your your future and maybe the future of your family on this and so you know it looks like you're really in the game and if you're really in the game well then maybe that does facilitate a certain kind of ethical t transformations highly probable just to start to think in that long-term way and to start to think about questions of ultimate value it's like how could that not have a transformative effect it certainly does on people and so yeah. wouldn't it be lovely if this all worked out and maybe it will <laughs> Dr. Peterson, I have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your work. Thank you for the work you do for humanity. Um, propagating this message of freedom, truth, responsibility, it matters a lot for a lot of people. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Thank you very much, everyone.